Father, we have sung about the great, amazing love of God, and we would ask now, Lord, that you give us the capacity to see it and understand it better as a result of our being here today. It is an amazing love, and it's a complex love, and there is so much of your love that we don't understand fully, and yet, Father, though Paul calls it something that is beyond our comprehension, he prays that we would comprehend. And so, Father, help us now to pursue a comprehension of this incomparable love of yours so that we would know how to worship you more fully and obey you more completely. All of it for your great glory and for our great joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. We are in John chapter 3 once again, and we are looking at verse 16. Um, This has taken a while because, unfortunately, there is significant misunderstanding about the basic truths that are revealed in this chapter, in this text. And, you know, if you could divide Christianity into two camps, the more Reformed camp and the more Arminian camp, um, I I think both views are deficient, or at least as they are popularly held. And so we've been trying to understand what the text says about the love of God. And so two weeks ago, we began looking at, one of, at this most beloved, perhaps the most beloved of all scriptures since the beginning of, of the age of the church. John 3.16 is a verse that's so simple, every Sunday school child can understand and memorize And yet theologians have debated it for years because the truths are not just simple, they are complex. And there are a couple of words here that are of significant importance, but the word that we've been focused on these last few weeks has been the word loved. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Now what did he mean, what did Jesus mean when he told Nicodemus, God loved the world. Or we could say, we could put it in the present tense, God loves the world. In the past couple of weeks, we've learned that the love of God is much deeper and richer than we ever imagined it to be. We tend to be people who are hardwired to take the superlative and the glorious and make it mundane and simple. You know, the second law of thermodynamics or the law of entropy, the complex becomes simple. That's not only a scientific term relative to creation. You know, you put a piece of metal out in the rain and what happens? It begins to rust and turn back to dust, right? The complex becomes simple. Well, the same thing happens in our understanding of biblical truth. We like to take complex things and boil them down and make them very, very simple But the reality is a lot of times when we do that, we we overboil it, we overcook it, we oversimplify it, and therefore we miss the glory, and we don't want to miss it. And we can be tempted to move into error, and we don't want to do that either. And so two weeks ago, we spent the whole hour looking at what it means that God loved the world. If you haven't been here for this series of messages, then get on our app, get on our website, go to the back and ask David, catch up with this, because you need to understand these things. Last week, we sought to give some clarity on the whole aspect of the love of God by trying to explain the five ways, this is not the five points of anybody, These are the five ways that Scripture talks about the love of God. And this is helpful. I suggested last week, this this is something you probably should write in the back of your Bible just to help you keep your bearings when you hear theological conversations that, that are going to press you this way or that way relative to God's relationship 
with the world, God's relationship with the elect, God's relationship with his children. What is the love of God? And I suggested last week that there are five descriptions or five categories of understanding the love of God from the Word of God. And they're so significant, I just want to rehearse them with you just briefly. Number one. Number one is what, in, what theologians call the intra-Trinitarian view of the love of God. That is, intra-Trinitarian means inside the Trinity. So you have the love of the Father for the Son. You have the love of the Son back to the Father. And certainly the love of the Spirit too, although I couldn't find a text for that. But the love that, that happens for all eternity past... Within the Godhead, they were not lonely. Remember we talked about that last week? They weren't lonely. They weren't needy. They didn't create, create us to fill a void. They were absolutely, or you could say they were, or he was, absolutely self-sufficient and absolutely, perfectly, eternally, infinitely satisfied in the love that they had for one another. And by the way... Um, one of the ladies afterwards asked me about a great text that I didn't bring in to the message last week that I think is, is perfect here. So go, go to John chapter 17. You know, we often talk about Matthew chapter 6 uh, being the Lord's Prayer. That's really not the Lord's Prayer. That's the Lord teaching his disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17, and it's a long, long prayer and it's so packed full of theology, I tremble at the thought of how long it's going to take to work through that when we get to chapter 17. But here we are, uh, John chapter 17, look at verses 30, I'm sorry, 22 and 23. Remember, we're talking about the intra-Trinitarian love of God, and how does that relate to us? Watch this. Here's Jesus talking to the Father. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, meaning his disciples and vicariously us as well. I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that we may be perfect in unity so that the world may know that you sent me, and watch this, and that you loved them even as you have loved me. Now what's that? That... Is, you know, we just talked a few minutes ago about all I have is Christ. Our identity as children of God is Christ. We are in him. He has inherited all of our debt. We have inherited all of his righteousness. And now God, by his grace, his infinite grace, has elevated us to such an extent that we now, are you ready for this? We get to participate and be beneficiaries of the intra-Trinitarian love that he has delighted in for all eternity. I hope your silence is a silence of being stunned and not one of being bored. Because, oh, beloved, if we could understand the privilege that God has brought us to himself, how much does God love his children? You can only answer that question by asking another. How much does God the Father love God the Son? That's what Jesus is saying. This is the intra-Trinitarian love of God. It is one that has been exclusive between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity, but now we have been drawn up into it as sons and daughters of God, though we, granted, don't fully appreciate it yet. And it's why Paul, I think, in, in Ephesians chapter 3, talks about the incomprehensible, incomparable love of God that he prays that we will be able to comprehend. Okay, I spent too much time on number one. Number two. Number one is the intra-Trinitarian love. I'm giving you five ways that the Word of God speaks of the love of God. Number two, his providential love. This is God causing it to rain, which for us city dwellers, we need help with this. Rain is a good thing. <laughs> if you live in, a, in an agrarian society, and all of us do to some extent, we, we depend on the farmers. And so we depend on rain. And, and 
God causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He provides for them all. He provides for all the birds, all the animals. He makes sure they're fed. Not a single sparrow drops off of a branch or dies without the knowledge of the Lord. He cares about them. He sustains his world. And there's the invisible hand of providence behind us, rescuing us, sustaining us, feeding us, taking care of us. It is a great comfort to know that behind every circumstance there is the invisible hand of God. Judge not by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind the frowning providence there hides a smiling face. God is there no matter what your circumstance. He is there sustaining and enlivening and vivifying your experience on this earth. If it were not for him, we would be in desperate straits and would have never lived to begin with. This is the providential love of God. He's sustaining of all that he created. By the way, global warming, or whatever we're calling it, it feels like Ice Age coming again, um, Climate change, promise of the word of God after the flood was springtime and harvest, summer and winter will never cease until he brings final judgment. That's God's providential love for his creation, all of his creation. That includes animals, that includes stars, that includes people, both the saved, the elect, the unsaved, the the God-rejectors, all of it. Number three, third kind of love described in the Bible, love of God. The universal, yearning, commanding love of God. The universal, yearning, commanding love of God, which is supremely demonstrated, demonstrated in the cross. Where do you get that? Here's where I get it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I would say, as the context bears out, we're going to see this in a minute, this love of God is the love that he demonstrated on the cross, he demonstrated on the cross, and it's a love that he offers and he pours out upon all mankind. Demonstrated at the cross, this is his yearning, loving, commanding love. It is a love that longs, I I know these sound like anthropomorphic term or anthropathetic terms in the sense that this is God's emotion, right? There is an emotional aspect to the being of God whereby he yearns and he longs and he desires certain things. And one thing that he desires is that for all men to be saved and to not perish but have everlasting life. This is what he's referring to in John 3.16. And and by the way, this is the love of God that fuels our evangelism and our mission effort. If we we conclude, as, as I'm afraid many of us have, that God does not love the wicked, then we will not go. We will not go. And that was the error of... of, um, hyper-Calvinism back in the 18th century, back in the days of William Carey. William Carey was a Reformed guy. He loved the doctrines of grace and said he would have no hope of, of being, having any success on the mission field if it weren't for the doctrines of grace, if it weren't for the reality that he believed that God was calling and electing and choosing, that he would have, he would have no hope, he would have no motivation to go But if he didn't believe that God loved the world equally, he would not have any reason to go. And here was the problem back in his day. The hyper-Calvinists, which everybody was a Calvinist back then, they, they, they were of this opinion. If God wants to save those people, he will do it without us. 
He'll just sovereignly do it. And that was a total misrepresentation of what the Word of God teaches. It doesn't teach that God elects everyone. It does teach that he loves everyone with a yearning, commanding love. You say, what's the commanding part? That's a good question. Here's the commanding part. Put them both together. I don't want any of you to be lost, but I want all of you to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, command, repent. Repent, or as Peter will say, obey the gospel. If you don't do that, then there there is no hope. There's no hope. Please don't, don't make this yearning love of God the same thing as his electing love. If you do, if you do, you've taken two categories of scripture and you've mingled them together and overly simplified, overly boiled, overcooked the doctrine of God's love. I tell you, it is more complex than what you imagine. If you're going to get theology right, you got to cut it straight and you got to cut it pretty thin. And this is the way it's presented. So number four, God's electing love. This is the love by which he has predestined his elect to be saved from before the foundation of the world. I read a little bit out of Ephesians. If you were to read Ephesians chapter 1 or read um, Romans 8, 9, 11, um, all of those chapters and and tons more, you're going to see God's electing grace whereby he chose whom he willed from before the creation of the world. That's God's electing love. And you know what? You've got to be really careful. If you take God's indiscriminate, yearning, commanding love, and you try to insert it into Ephesians chapter 1 or Romans 8, you're going to have serious doctrinal problems because what you end up with is universalism. And that's not right. I mean, that's not right on its face. Not everyone is saved. I mean, you can't read the Bible and conclude anything else, right? And so that's God's electing love. And number five, and this one, this one I love just because it, it challenges me every day, and that's God's provisional love, or you could say his conditional love. And when you start talking about conditional love, people go, whoa, that's got to be false doctrine. It's not. If you understand what we talked about last week, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Jude, verse 21, says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now remember, again, all we're doing here is we're talking about the five different ways the Bible speaks of the love of God. And one of those ways is this conditional, provisional love of God that is not, doesn't have anything to do with salvation, doesn't have anything to do with his love for unbelievers. This is a, a special love that is indicative of a relationship between those who are truly his own, his elect, his children, and the Father, and Christ. And so we saw that last week with Jesus talking about his obedience to the Father, and then he immediately says, we will obey him, uh, excuse me, we love him if we keep his commandments. And this was my illustration last week. If you are parents, then you love your children from the moment they're born until long after they're gone, uh, if you outlive them. Um, you will love your children, right? And all you parents said, amen. amen, that's right, you will love your children. When they disobey, do you love your children when they disobey? Yes. Yes. I love my children when they disobey. Even if I get upset at them, I love them. Now, when I discipline my children, do they feel like I love them? No. It doesn't matter what you say. I love, th- I love you. Don't ever doubt my love. This hurts me more than it hurts you. And they're going to think, yeah, right. I don't even tell my kids that anymore. This is going to hurt you more than it hurts me, but I love you. And they don't get any of that, so why say any of it, right? Um, So um, 
this is, what is Jude talking about when he says, keep yourselves in the love of God? You have to connect it with Jesus saying, you love me if you keep my commandments. There is something about your experience of the love of God and your love for God, that relationship of love between you and God, that is conditional. The experience of it is conditional to your obedience. So that, does God's love for you ever change? No. Does your experience of that love change? Yes, it does. And so when Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, he also says, praying always in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is that experiential, or as the Puritans used to say, the experimental um, relationship or, or, or uh, manifestation of this love of God, this enjoyment of the love of God. So those are the five things. Those are the five categories that I'm aware of in the Bible that I think you could take anywhere you find the love of God in the Bible or, or the relationship of love between him and his people, and you can fit it into one of those five categories. Now, that is so important, and I explained why last week, and I don't want to delve much into it this week, but if you combine them, if you amalgamate them into a kind of a theological soup, you're going to go into error. You're going to go into error. And so here's what I'm pleading for. If you tend to lean more toward an Arminian perspective, or if you tend to lean more toward a reformed or Calvinistic perspective on the word of God. Here's what I'm pleading for. Let God be God. Let his word speak. And bring yourself under his word and don't put yourself over it. There is mystery here. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Or who is ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. What does that mean? I don't know. From him and through him and to him. How many things? All things. Can I comprehend that? Listen, I, I believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, which ironically means clarity. How perspicuity ended up meaning clarity I believe in the clarity of Scripture. The Scriptures were not meant to hide things. We call it revelation because it was meant to reveal things, reveal things about God and about ourselves, but not to reveal everything. We can't comprehend everything about God. And so does, does God love all of humanity? And some of you are tempted to say no. And I say, get yourself under the text. Get yourself under it. God loves all of humanity. And from before the foundation of the world, in the mystery of his divine providence, he has elected some. You say, how do you bring those two together? You don't. You simply say, who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? And you worship. That's what you do. No idea where I am in my notes. My goal on the first week of this study was to look at John 3.16 and to establish that what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus was that lo God loves mankind. Sinner, saints, children of God, rebels, Jews, Gentiles, Africans, Asians, Americans, Canadians, South Americans, wherever people are, whoever they are, there is some sense, some omnipotent sense in the mind of God and in the teaching of his word whereby he loves all of humanity. This would have been shocking to Nicodemus because he would have believed that the only people God loved were the Jews. 
The Jewish mindset had no room, had no room for the inclusion of Gentiles in the salvation of God's, the salvation that God offers. That doesn't mean that's what the Bible taught, and that's my whole point here. We're somehow hardwired by our sin nature, perhaps, to take our perspective and insert it into the Bible rather than drawing from the Bible God's mind or the mind of Christ. And so here, the Old Testament had been established for hundreds of years by the time Nicodemus had come. The canon had been closed um, for at least 400 years. And, And so even though that was the case, they had 400 years to think about the completed Old Testament, and yet they picked and they chose the, the passages that they wanted that fitted into their own systematic theology. And they didn't see that God, like in Jeremiah, what was it, 36 or 39 this week, I was reading just in my own personal time in the Word, how Babylon came to, to finally conquer Jerusalem as Jeremiah had been predicting that they would. And, uh, and they came and the king and his people tried to run out the back gate and they got caught. And, and the king of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came or his general came and slaughtered all the king's sons just before he put out the, the eyes of the king so that that would be the last thing he ever saw in the world was the slaughter of his sons. And then he comes in, he starts taking Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and those guys away for the first Babylonian captivity. And then he comes to Jeremiah and he makes provision for him. And then in the middle of all of that, Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord. And the Lord says... Speak to the, and I can't pronounce his name, but the Ethiopian eunuch and tell him, there will be much death, there will be much destruction, but I will give you your life because I will save, is what he says, you will be saved because you put your faith in the Lord. He wasn't even Jewish. He wasn't even from the same ethnicity or the nationality, completely different. An Ethiopian eunuch. And yet you see this all through. You think of Rahab. You think of um, Ruth. She was from Moab. And yet she is the picture of God's saving grace. You think of Cornelius and others. I mean, just start at the beginning. Abraham. But somehow they missed all of that. And they believed that salvation was not just for the Jews first, but for the Jews only. And so this was earth-shattering for Nicodemus. Frankly, they didn't have enough gospel in their understanding of salvation to save anybody. Nicodemus' understanding of the way that God saves sinners was hardly any gospel at all. He thought sinners were reconciled to God by birth and by works. But Jesus destroys that false thinking with the hammer of eternal truth. And, and really, the biblical <clears throat> analogy for the word of God is better, the sword. I mean, it's, it, it's so light in the hands of Christ. I mean, he's just flipping through this theological and just... just taking Nicodemus's theology and just ripping it to ribbons with these little slides. Every phrase, there's no throwaway terms or, or phrases in this section of John, th- or any section of the Bible, really. But here in John 3.16, every statement he makes is a direct attack on Nicodemus's theology. Now, let's take this another step further by showing you another reason why we have to conclude that when Jesus says God loved the world, he meant the entire human race, okay? And we're going to do that. We've done it from other places. I've tried to show you the five loves of God. I've tried to show you in the first week, I've shown you the, the Old Testament, God's pleading, yearning, love, calling men everywhere to repent. Now let's look in the immediate context. Maybe we should have done that first, but here we are. The word here for world is cosmos, or we typically say cosmos. Cosmos, it's a very fluid term in the Greek, can mean any number of things. Somebody, uh, somebody told me that the cosmos, the word world here, can mean like a hundred different things. Here's a sampling. It can mean universe, earth, world system, people, an ordered structure, all that exists, mankind, 
And there's other, there's a number of other translations as well. So as always, when we're looking at a word, especially one that's so plastic and elastic as the word cosmos, then you have to go to the context in order to determine its meaning. And one of the most important places to look whenever we're trying to find context here is the immediate verses before and the immediate verses after. Unfortunately, we don't have the usage of the word world very much previous to this in the, in the immediately previous verses. But watch this, starting with verse 16. Let's just read this text and see if we can identify how world is used. Know this also, that every time it's used in this passage I'm about to read, the word is always cosmos. Okay, so here we go. For God so loved the, what? World. There's the first one. And he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the, what? World. To judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the what? World. And men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. So what's he saying? He's saying God sent his Son to the world. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the world? Well, let's look for the clues here. Um, Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he speaks about God judging the world. Again, in verse 18, he's speaking of those who, who are in the world being judged by God. In fact, he says that they are judged already. They are already under God's judgment already under God's condemnation because of what? Because of their unbelief. So these are unbelievers who, as it stands right now, are under God's judgment. And by the way, I think this specifically, most immediately, is being applied to Nicodemus. Jesus is telling him, you're a religious leader, I know, and you're, you're a big man on campus, I understand. You're the, the teacher in Israel, whatever that means. And everybody loves you and everybody respects you except God. Because in God's eyes, you are already being judged. Now, that helps me because I know the rest of the story of Nicodemus, right? This this doesn't mean that he was elect for judgment. You don't find that anywhere. What you find is that universally he's saying all sinners, all sinners reject God and are therefore, because of their unbelief, already under judgment. But if you follow the story of Nicodemus, you come to the end, and we can't be definitive on this, but he did, he did stand up for Jesus uh, when he was about ready to be put on trial, and he did come and help bury Jesus and, and provided a hundred pounds of spices, nard, and whatever else to give him a proper burial. You kind of come to the end, and though we don't know for sure, we kind of think, well, you know, maybe he got the real thing. Maybe the wind blew as Jesus explains here in John 3, and Nicodemus was born of the Spirit, born of the water, and born of the Spirit. Maybe he got the new heart that Ezekiel talked about. Maybe he became a child of God, which means that whatever the state of judgment is in John chapter 3, it's not necessarily permanent. Okay, that was just an aside, but just to get you thinking. We're identifying who world is. They're under God's judgment. They're being judged because of their unbelief. Verse 19 explains that their being being judged is owing to the fact that the light that is Jesus came into the world, but men, watch this, loved darkness rather than light. And that really hits home because that tells us where the problem is. The problem is in their wanter. It's in their, the thing, the aspect of the human being that loves things or people. It is the desire factory. It is what, um, what Paul would call the heart or the old man or the flesh. 
And not to get too theological here, but what he's talking about is that part of your being that must be transformed by the miracle of God. That wanter that always wants the wrong thing. And here he's saying, God, here's what it says in Greek, it's not God so loved as if God loved the world this much, but rather this is how, this is the means by which God demonstrated his amazing, awesome love. And so the way it reads in Greek is, in this manner God loved the world He gave his son, the only one. The only begotten here is monogane, the only one. It's not like God had five boys and said, okay, I got to save the human race. Let's see. Uh, No, 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 I want want the eldest, I want the eldest, you stay with me. But this little little scrawny one at the end, why don't we send him to die? No, 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 no. There weren't any options here. He had one, one child, one son, one infinite person of the Trinity that he would call my son. You must go. How much and in what manner and because of the manner, to what degree did God love the human race? You figure it out. He sent his son, the only one. That's amazing. That's amazing. What's Jesus telling us here? Who is the world that Jesus is speaking of? Is it not the sinful, darkness-loving, God-rejecting human race? It is not the world of people. It's not a... A world of people comprised only of the elect. And and beloved, if if you're reformed, that's kind of the way that that you may tend to lead. Lean. You may lean in the direction of thinking, oh, he's referring to a world of elect people. And I would just say, please, don't impose your systematic theology on this text. Let the text speak. He's not speaking of an elect, a world of elect, a world full of elect people, like elect people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. That's not what this passage is talking about at all. Other passages do. Not here. Not here. Um, it is not a world of people, comp- a world of people comprised only of the elect of God. It is also people who will ultimately fall under the judgment of God. Jesus is telling us that God loved this humanity so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever among them believes in him, they will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I know some of you hearing my voice are going to say, I don't believe that because I'm a Calvinist. To which I would respond, If you say that, then you must think that you agree with John Calvin. But let me assure you, if you don't believe that the world here means world in its fullest universal sense, then John Calvin doesn't agree with you. How do I know that? Well, let's let him speak for himself. Here's John Calvin on John chapter 3, verse 16. He writes, quote, Two points are distinctly stated to us here. Namely, that faith in Christ brings life to all, and that Christ brought life because the Father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish. John Calvin. He goes on to explain this. John 3.16. In John 3.16, the evangelist, try to follow me now, the the evangelist has employed the universal term whosoever, both to invite all indiscriminately to partake of life and to cut off every excuse for unbelievers. 
Such is also the import of the term world, which he formerly used. For though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the world when he invites all without exception to the faith of Christ, which is nothing else than entrance into life. And then he cautions, however, let us remember, on the other hand, that while life is promised universally to all who believe in Christ, still faith is not common to all, but the elect alone are those whose eyes God's op- God opens that they may seek him in faith. What's he doing? He's trying to cut it straight. Not every passage that speaks of the love of God speaks to his universal love. And not every passage that speaks of the love of God speaks of his electing love. We have to be discriminant. We have to understand from the context of the text what kind of love is this talking about. D.A. Carson, likewise, in his excellent book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, he writes this, I know that some try to take cosmos, world, here, to refer to the elect, But that really will not do. All the evidence of the usage of the word in John's gospel is against such a suggestion. Again, from the uh, late 1800s, Robert L. Dabney Dabney explains this. A logical connection between verse 17 and verse 18 shows that the world of verse 17 includes those who believe and those that believe not in verse 18. And then he writes this, It is hard to see if Christ coming into the world is not a true manifestation of divine love to to that part of the world that does not believe. How they're choosing to reject it is the just grounds of a deeper condemnation as is expressed and stated in verse 19. Here's what he's saying. It makes no sense to say that God condemns people in the world who reject the love of God in Christ if God never loved them in Christ to begin with. He loves the world. He loves the whole world. John MacArthur agrees. He says, there, are no delimiting, there is no delimiting language anywhere in the context of John 3.16. It has nothing to do with how God's love is distributed between the elect and the rest of the world. It is a statement about God's demeanor toward mankind in general. His demeanor, which is, which is where we put things like God's desire, his longing, his affection for. We think of God as like this computer in the sky who has no emotion. He just has will. He has decisions. But he's not like that. Your God is bigger than you think he is. And in some sense, when we, when we say things like that, we make God smaller than us. You know what my job is? Here's my job. I love my job. It's a very fearful thing to have this responsibility. But here's my job as I see it. Let me tell you what it's not, first of all. My job is not to help you with your business. I can't make your business more successful. I don't know of any scriptures that were written to make your business more successful. Um, I don't know how to get your neighbor to stop mowing his lawn while you're trying to take a nap. I can't think of a scripture that helps you with that. I don't know of a lot of scriptures that were designed, that were intended to teach you how to handle your money on the stock market or how to make it increase or any of that stuff. And none of those things, that's not my job. You know what my job is? My job is week after week after week after week after week to stand before you and say... Your God is far bigger than you think he is. He is far more glorious. He is far more complex. He is far more gracious, far more loving, far more holy 
than you ever imagined him to be. God said to Israel, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you thought that I was altogether like yourself. I am not. I'm not. And there are attributes of God and aspects of his character that make us uncomfortable. Live with it and worship him for it. You may not like the fact that God elects people from before the creation of the world. You either need to remove those scriptures from the Bible or you need to get on your face before God and say, I believe. And there are others of you who are totally uncomfortable with thinking God loves the human race as a whole. And I would say to you, you need to get your Bible, you need to get on the floor, and you need to get under that thing. Don't impose your thinking on the Word of God. Now, we don't have time to quote anybody else here, but I mean, I I could spend my time quoting people who are trying, uh, scholars who are trying to help us understand that when you're dealing with theology, especially relative to the character of God, you got to cut it straight and you got to cut it thin. Otherwise, you start heading into error. And beloved, our church, the American church, and the Russian church, as I've seen it, and the African church, we're in serious, serious trouble. You know why? Because this morning, as every Sunday morning, preachers will get up and say, Today I'm going to use the Bible to teach you how to have a better business and make more money. I'm going to teach you how to relate to your, uh, to your boss, I mean to your neighbor, set up boundaries. I'm going to give you scriptures for that so that you can get your neighbor to, to behave like you want them to, or your wife, or your husband, or your kids. I'm going to give you three easy lessons in seven easy scriptures that will transform your children. You know what? That kind of teaching and preaching has led us to the mess that the American, Western, European, and African church are in today. Because we don't let the word of God be the word of God. Now, if you're still struggling with this, I understand it, and I would encourage you, don't stop struggling. Wrestle with the text. And let me give you some text to wrestle with. How about this? How about the book of Jonah? Don't you love Jonah? I love Jonah. You know what Jonah's about? Jonah's about salvation, but the dominant theme of Jonah is God's sovereignty. If you read the book, next time you have a chance to read the book, it's only a few chapters long. It's what? Six chapters long? Four chapters long. There, I just saved you two pages. Um... God loved the people of Nineveh. They were wicked. They were evil. And God told Jonah, take my message to Nineveh. And he didn't want to go. Why? God, you're supposed to hate those people. They're not part of the elect. Oh, really? Watch this. (laughs) Whale, storm, boat, sailors, gourd, worm, Everything in the book of Jonah bows to God's sovereign will, even the Ninevites, except one character, Jonah. And so we find him at the end. He's still upset. He's still upset. He's hacked. When the curtain closes, he's there just hacked off that God saved these people. They're not part of the elect. Notice how John, listen, listen to the compassion of God for sinners. God said to Jonah, do you, have the, do you have any reason to be angry about the plant? Now, all of you environmentalists who are hearing my voice, listen and learn. <laughs> do you have any good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even unto death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant? for which you did not work, in which you did did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Now watch this, verse 11, last verse in the whole book. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as as well as many animals? 
And many scholars say, 120 persons, who could they be? Well, the only thing we know about them is they don't know their right hand from their left. Perhaps they're the children. There's 120,000 children, not to mention adults, not to even mention the animals whom I love. And I shouldn't have compassion on them because your theology doesn't fit what I want to do. You think, you think God doesn't love and desire and yearn for things that will not, this is, this is the conundrum for, for those who are kind of on the Calvinistic side. You think, you think in your mind, because it's logical, that since God is infinite and he can do all, that, all his holy will, he, everything he wants to do, um, he's sovereign. Therefore, if he desires something, it must come to pass. And I would say, read more closely, cut it more thinly, more straightly. Are those words? Thinly, straightly. Um, because here's what we learn in Scripture. God yearns for things, longs for things, but that doesn't necessarily mean he gets those things. And that has no implication relative to his sovereignty. Think of Luke 13, 34. Here's Jesus. He'd be a good one to look at too if we're, right, if we're trying to think, trying to ask ourselves, how does God relate to sinners, Right? So we look at Jesus. We looked at all those Old Testament passages a few weeks ago where we'd seen this, just get the messages on the, on the website or on the app or sermon online or wherever you get these sermons. Ask David in the back, catch up with this. But here's what Jesus said. Okay, here's immediate context. He's talking to Jerusalem. Not just the Jews, but the center of the nation of Israel, Jerusalem. He's come down the Mount of Olives. He's about to enter Jerusalem. And he says this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city, notice how he describes them, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often have I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. You see complexity here? You see the, the dynamics of God's love? This is his John 3.16 love. You who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. I love you. And I would gather you together to be mine. But you don't want me. And so I say again, that's the problem. Your wanter needs to be miraculously transformed. Or to say it like Ezekiel, or God said it through Ezekiel, you need to have your heart of stone removed and a living heart of flesh put in its place. You need a spiritual heart transplant. And only God can do that. How about this, Titus 3, 4. Speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, Paul says, this is how he describes it. He describes it in these terms. The kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. What's he referring to? The kindness of God and his love for mankind appeared in the person of Jesus Christ which is just a different way of saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Does that mean he doesn't elect some? No. You're confusing his electing love with his universal, longing, pleading, commanding love. God genuinely loves a world of sinners. 
loves them, and he would gather them all together to be his own if they would have him. And that's why Jesus has to say in the Gospel of Matthew, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There are dynamics here that we can't even begin to imagine. And so you see, beloved, there's a very real sense in which God loves the world. Yes, it is a world of sinners, rebels, Christ-rejectors, but in some holy and divinely omnipotent way, God loves all men and yearns for sinners to repent and be saved. And that's why Paul could say things like in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now listen to how he describes God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, why should this matter to us? It shouldn't matter, most importantly. Because to love God fully, we must know him increasingly. We have to grow in our knowledge of God. And, and, and Paul told Timothy, let your progress be made known to all. You know what? Just in this short study of John chapter 3, I've grown in my knowledge of God. This is not old stuff for me. This is beautiful. This is glorious. And I have not understood this my whole life or even more than the past few months staggered by the glory of the love of God. We need to see that to help us worship God. If you're going to come here week after week and worship God for who he is, then you have to know how he's revealed himself. And so we need to be honest with the text. If we are living to show the world what God is like, then we need to know what he is like and relate to him appropriately. Secondly, This should all matter to us because there are some who are hearing my voice right now who are not reconciled to God. And one of the reasons is you think God hates you. And you think it's hopeless. I would point you again to Nicodemus who even though Jesus said he was under judgment already appears that Nicodemus repented. And if you're not convinced by that then just look at the Apostle Paul. any number of people that we could look at in the New and Old Testament who were murderers, revilers, and yet God loved them. And at his appointed time, he saved them. Not because of their works, not because they earned it, not because God was pleased with them, but simply because of his electing love. And some of you are, are, are slow to even think about coming to God because you think he hates you. He doesn't hate you. This is, what, this is how you should hear God speaking to you now. God loves you. He sent his son. He wants the best for you. Therefore, he commands you, repent and believe. Believe. The third reason why this should be important to us is because God's, <clears throat> excuse me, God's love for a world of sinners is strong motivation for our mission and evangelistic effort. I mentioned this earlier, but if we don't believe God loves the people that we're going to, we don't have what it takes to last in that environment. There are some in America that God has called to go to Lebanon to die for the sake of the gospel. If you don't believe God loves those people, you'd never be willing to go. There is one family in our church that left everything and is living in West Africa now. It's 125 degrees this time of year in West Africa. If they didn't believe that God loved the people they were living among, then why would they stay? 
There's another family in our church who left here all the comforts of home, all the benefits of being in the church where most of their family attends and is in leadership in, and moved to the jungles of Uganda where they're having to contend with cobras out by the children and black mambas in the Sunday school room in church. If you didn't believe God loves sinners, why would you go? How would you ever stay? But God does love sinners. God lo- does love sinners. And so Paul writes in Romans 10, 11 through 15, for the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. You know what he's saying here? He's correcting some of our misunderstanding. Uh, I don't know that that was his intent, but I think that's the effect because some who are on the more Calvinistic side of thinking are, are, in their minds, perhaps they would never verbalize it, but they would say with our brothers in the past that if God intends to save those people, he'll do it without us. But here's what we need to understand. God loves those people. He does have his elect that he is going to save. Yes, but he loves them all, and none, not even the elect, will be saved without the gospel. So think of it this way. God has ordained the end, that is, that an elect will be saved. We have no idea who they are. That's none of our business. He is also ordained sovereignly and purposefully the means of calling them to himself. He has ordained the end and the means. And so, how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear if there's not a preacher? Answer, they won't hear, therefore they won't believe. And so what's the conclusion? Go. Go. Beloved, we should not hesitate to tell our unbelieving family and friends, God loves you. I wouldn't tell them God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That may not be true. But God loves you, and he doesn't want you to be lost. And so he commands you to repent. And so, as Jason read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, We are ambassadors of God, delivering this message like Jonah did. Jonah's message was three days and judgment's coming, or 40 days or whatever it was. You know what our message is? Be reconciled to God. Very simple. Be reconciled to God. That's our message. And then we explain how. But that's the message. God loves you and he wants to be reconciled with you. So repent. He wants them to repent and find the forgiveness of sins and eternal joy through eternal life that he has provided for them in Christ and his cross. That helps, doesn't it? When we come to John chapter 3 and we read these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are treading both in deep water and on hallowed ground. Because as much as I try to understand the complexities of your salvation, 
and to communicate them clearly. I know, I know, oh Lord, I must only be picking at the fringes of the glory of it all. Oh, Father, forgive, forgive this servant of yours for not making it more clear. But, oh, Father, send your spirit to so move in the hearts of the hearers that they would, first of all, desire to know you who loves them. And secondly, that we would be fueled and motivated to share your love with everyone we know. For your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray it in Jesus' name.